All right, so we'll segue into our last uh, section here, and this is where uh, it's no holds barred. So when we throw this uh, agenda together, we're thinking about what are the common things, and there was, believe it or not, some thought in this that we, we guessed that there would be uh, a mixture of experience, which there is, and so we start with kind of the basics, just an overview to get everybody on the same page, and then we start digging deeper, but there are um, lots of areas that we didn't include just for the sake of um, time and also wanting to make sure we covered what we did well without trying to do too much. So issues like what do you do with the transplant patient or what do you do with the renal failure patient or that type of thing. So uh, we thought it'd be good if, you, if there's some, a patient or two or three or a series of them who you've particularly struggled with, um, now's a great time to just briefly present the case and then we'll bounce it around and we may find that uh, there is no answer, uh, which often is the case, uh, but at least you know there's no answer, uh, or at least among us. Um, anybody want to kick it off? Yes, please hold on. This is more of a question. So I had a patient that I treated for hepatitis C, co-infected, did very well, and then her liver enzymes came pretty high up, and then we found out she actually had autoimmune hypertension. How, I mean, autoimmune hepatitis. So how common is that? I was really surprised because, you know, she was co-infected, and I assumed her liver enzymes were elevated from the hep C, treated the hep C, and then a couple of months later, I always asked her about alcohol, and, you know, land up working up and found out, you know, she was about 55, like 52, and I really didn't expect somebody to be around like 52 to have autoimmune um, hepatitis. No, it's a great question, autoimmune <coughs> hepatitis in hepatitis C. We saw it not infrequently with interferon because interferon induces autoimmunity and enhances your chance. And so everybody on interferon got an ANA and a TSH because 14% of them got thyroid disease and not infrequently they got autoimmune hepatitis. It's pretty uncommon with DAAs, but it's been described that people can have two diseases. I mean, hepatitis C, you have to have an exposure, but autoimmune, you have an exposure, you have a pre-existing a pre uh, uh, genetic background, and autoimmune hepatitis was, in the textbooks, it says it's in teenagers and middle-aged women, which they meant 40s and 50s, but now I have patients who present for the first time in their 80s. So it can occur any time. It hasn't made me check ANA on everybody. Well, most patients with elevated ALTs will end up getting an ANA. I think the other point to bring up is in HIV, IgG is elevated, and that's been shown 30, or 30 years ago in Fauci's lab, when we were looking at unstimulated IgG, it was highly elevated. So it may be hard to determine. You may end up having to do a biopsy to determine if they have plasma cells and interface hepatitis. Well, that's how she actually, that's what had to, we actually had to do a biopsy because I couldn't yeah. figure it out. Couldn't work it out. And when she had her biopsy, we found out she had um, autoimmune hepatitis. And while she was actually being seen for that, because I don't like to do autoimmune hepatitis. Yeah. We also found out that she had lupus. So I love ha doing autoimmune <laughs> hepatitis, and you know, there's no contraindication to treating both. But 
when would you screen? Like, you know, like you said, not using interferon, we really don't do that. Like, when would you think about screening patients? Right. Yeah, that, I, I think say, that's the question. I think it's a really good question. And I'll tell my approach, and then I want to see if she thinks it's good. Um, so in the interferon era, I always screen prior to treatment, right? Because you were worried if it was undiagnosed, it might flare from the interferon. Now I don't do that. I treat, and if the liver enzymes don't normalize like your patients didn't, then I start the workup for other things, fatty liver, autoimmune. Do you think that's reasonable? or? Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. I take an autoimmune history. 30% of patients with autoimmune hepatitis have thyroid disease or a family member with thyroid disease. So if I hear an autoimmune history, I don't count diabetes because it's Type 2 is way too common, but other things, then I will do an ANA before. But if there's no history, I do exactly what Christy does. Well, except remember, I'm a liver doctor, so when they come in with abnormal LFTs, they probably get everything when they get their hep C. <laughs> yes. Would just an ANA be enough, or would you do a, a smooth muscle and antibody? No, I do an ANA, a smooth muscle antibody, and an IgG. Oh. Because IgG greater than upper limit of normal, which is 1600 in most. Sorry, they didn't like that. Greater than 1600 in most labs. Uh, remember, there's four points for autoimmune. Get one or two for autoantibodies. And that can be either ANA, SMA, or LKM. Mm -hmm. One or two for IgG being elevated. So one point if it's above normal, two points if it's 10% above normal. Two points if you don't have viral hepatitis, so you lose two points. And two points for the biopsy, one for probable, two for definite. Don't do LKM if they're under 20. It's a waste of money. And don't do AMA if they don't have polystatic disease. So I do smooth muscle, ANA, and IgG. Great. Other cases or questions that people you've seen, people you've struggled with? Yes, Al. The microphone back. Thank you. What about people you don't really want to treat, like a, uh, a, a co-infected individual who does not want HIV treatment yeah. or who is non-compliant with the HIV medication? Yeah. Um, so Michael and I worked together in Birmingham, and at the break we, we were just talking about we've almost got our entire cohort of HIV patients who were co-infected cured of HCV. We're very proud of that. But there's a fraction that we haven't even attempted, and it's the second patient you described. And, and I'm, I'll just tell you how we've been talking about it. I'm curious what you all think. But I would love to cure them of their hep C, but the patients don't take their HIV medicines regularly, usually because of some life issues. So my thought is that if they're having life issues that's interfering with taking one pill once a day for HIV, we're going to now commit to one or two or sometimes three pills once a day, even if it's just for eight weeks. And it's an individual decision, but my tendency is to lean away from treating it unless there's advanced liver disease. I don't know, Christy, what do you do with that patient? Right. I have some similar patients as well. I'm sure we probably all do. Um, I think 
you know, that's a situation if you can get something like directly observed therapy or something. Because I do feel some people are very motivated to take hep C medication and not so much their HIV medications for whatever reason. I've always prioritized if someone has AIDS treating HIV. Um, but there are some people, and especially if they have advanced liver disease, I will try to figure out a system where, you know, to make it work. So, and so I'm willing to treat people. I do think it may not work as well. You know, I think having your immune system intact, and I try, that's how I try and sell taking the HIV medications, is that I think, you know, we don't have a lot of studies of treating someone's hep C when they're, when their CD4 counts below 100. Usually to be eligible for the study, your CD4 count has to be 100, so. Right, but the first scenario where there are some people who just say, I don't want HIV treatment, but I'd love to have my HCD cured, that's a different story, and I think that person's motivated to take and probably will be cured, but the, all the early studies with interferon required mostly that they had suppressed HIV, so we don't know. With the DAAs, I think we're gonna have cure. Diving a little bit into the biology, um, a lot of the discussion, especially with hepatologists, very early in the days of, of DAA therapy, there was a um, sort of a, a philosophical almost battle to say, well, don't you, if you're giving DAAs, you're still gonna need to give some exogenous interferon. And that was usually the position of a lot of the hepatologists. The ID specialists and virologists said, no, not necessarily because you're really stopping replication and there's endogenous interferon that should wipe, clear it out. The latter argument ended up proving correct. Um, all that said, um, in the case of HIV, since we're gonna rely on native immunity in the natural interferon to clear, the immune system function is impaired some just by having HIV in the milieu. It's the virus that's causing a lot of the immunologic dysfunction, the HIV virus. So it's possible that it may not clear as well uh, without suppression of HIV, but that's a guess. My, my personal feeling, underscore that, uh, this is now faith-based commentary, <laughs> my faith belief is that it probably will clear because the immune system isn't totally wiped out and it probably has enough, and the DAAs are so potent um, that you can probably clear it out. But long term, if a person isn't taking the HIV medicine, they're going to... Yeah, the, yeah so... <laughs> so they might, it might help their liver disease, so they'll die of AIDS rather than end-stage <laughs> liver. Yeah, it's like the, the harm and know, death of perfect, perfect electrolyte balance. You're right, and, and it's all variable, right? But I think we've all had a case or two or three or more where we had somebody like this, they didn't want treatment, didn't want treatment, and then they get really sick, and then they find religion, right? And they come back and say, all right, all right, all right, all right, I get it, okay, fine. But it takes that, so most of them, I guess, are from Missouri, you know, show me, so they don't believe you until they actually experience it. Um, but that way, they'll at least have the hep C out of the way. It, it's, it's a judgment. So I hope what, you're, what everybody's taking away is that there's not a concrete right answer here, just discussion of the issue is what, is meaningful. Yeah, and I think. I think you can have the same discussion around people who won't stop using alcohol or people who don't stop using drugs. And I, I, I take the same approach because I feel sometimes when people cure their hep C, they kind of get this empowerment and then feel, you know, ready to take on other problems. And I hope it'll be a, you know, a positive change that keeps reinforcing other positive changes down the road. And I think especially with drug use, so many people 
feel that they've been so turned away by the medical community that kind of embracing people and treating them, you know, it starts, I think, more when you get a relationship going, then you have a better chance of people staying in care for other things as well. Um, I think so often we've just turned people away, come back when you stop using drugs, come back when you stop using drugs, and then of course it just, you know, never happens. <laughs> Well, that's a good segue to the yeah. next problem, which is the uh, non-compliant uh, hep C patient because of uh, drug use. A uh, person doesn't keep their appointments. They don't pick up their second month of, uh, of drug. You go to directly observe therapy. Uh, sometimes you can't contact these people. I think there's two sides. It's One is the data have shown that people who use drugs can be totally compliant. That's true. Yes. So that is yes. true. Yes. The other side is, so you have a bad patient for whatever reason, and I think that's a different question. It's not just drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be bad life. Personality Personality disorders, disorders whatever. Then you have to decide what, how to treat the patient. And yeah. that's case by case. Yeah. Let me put a plug for, since we are in New York again, for this study we have going on at um, the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center where people are being treated um, for hep C on site. They're actually being randomized to either being treated on site or usual care. But I do think that's one way to overcome that obstacle is more community-based treatment where there's very flexible drop-in hours and you know not sort of the traditional office where my front desk staff is like, you know, she's not here today. Go away. <laughs> like, you know, there's people there who are welcoming. And um, so I think you know, that's another possible solution, I think. And that's what we're studying in this study. So if you have any patients who are, um, for this study, it's active drug use within the past six months. Do you, do you, you take patients from Brooklyn? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Wait, so I think, all right. Well, I guess since we're here, we'll go there and then back to the back, yes. Mine is oh, just... Way, sorry, just, I wanted to uh, just throw one thing out. Uh, how many of y'all heard talks by Dr. Treisman? Remember him, Glenn Treisman from Hopkins? He has a great definition of personality disorder. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So somebody give me the DSM-5 definition of a personality disorder. Yeah, it's hard to define, right? So it's some complicated mumbo-jumbo. He's, he has a perfect definition. Anytime you see the diagnosis of personality dis disorder on the chart, what it means is that every healthcare provider who's ever provided care for them hates them. <laughs> and then that's all it means. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, mine is just a comment. People are so anxious to get treated for hep, hep C. And I think it is because there's never been. Um, an STD, it's not associated with an STD. It's not associated with a certain, you know, by a, of your sexual orientation. So it's a heterosexual disease. They've seen it on TV. Everybody knows Harvoni. It's like Tylenol. So that's, that's one reason why people are so anxious. And, and they've heard in the community now that people are getting cured. So they have this fear that if you have hep C, you're going to die in a, few, in a very short while. They've got this in, in them already. So they are more amenable to treatment. And if you can do anything to give them the drug, like almost in a DOT setting, it may be worth the, you know, the, the amount that it costs for, to, 
to get one treated. And I think education at the beginning that they can get reinfected is absolutely critical because we're giving away a lot of dollars. Yeah. You know, those commercials, you see those lanterns going off. I keep thinking, is that their soul going to heaven? Stay away from the light. Don't go near them. Yeah. Just wait for the mic to get back. Mine isn't really a question. Well, um, I have this patient. Um, he's HIV uh, positive. He's very adherent, uh, but his CD4 is always below 200. Mm -hmm. And my, my medical director calls him a savage case uh, because she's known him, you know, for a very long time. And he's um, hep C positive. And I was actually telling her, is can we actually initiate treatment? And she said, no. Is that so the HIV RNA is undetectable? Yes. So he's a discordant CD4 responder. Yes. Yeah, I think those Absolutely. people, you should certain, yeah, you can definitely treat them. And one thing to remember is particularly if they're cirrhotic, that will lower the CD4 count as well. So that person might need treatment even more urgently if their CD4 count's low because they're cirrhotic. But that's not a reason. I think that was more the interferon again. What era was it safe to give if someone's CD4 count was low? But definitely you can treat with CD4 count less than 200. Yeah, yeah this. So Go ahead, yes, so when we think about liver transplant in co-infected HIV, HCV, for kidney, it's a CD4 count of 200, but for liver, it's a CD4 count of 100. Because of portal hypertension and hypersplenism, their white count would be dropped. So okay. we recognize that. So, so a lot of you do HIV care, so this is something that we talk about a lot, but just to kind of bring everybody on the same page. When we treat with HIV, the viral load drops and goes undetectable within many weeks. And normally the CD4 count bumps up. This could be 200 cells, 150, whatever. So that that's all happened within, within two weeks, four, six weeks, I'm sorry. There's a group of patients like you're describing who don't get this bump. And they just kind of hover right here. And the thing to keep in mind is this that once you get beyond the six weeks, the slope of these two lines is relatively the same. So what happened? What happened is that the redistribution of CD4 cells from the lymphoid tissue didn't happen, meaning it wasn't there. So if you think in terms of what's going on in lymphoid tissue when HIV is replicating untreated, it's causing some local inflammation in the lymphoid tissue and lymph nodes, spleen, wherever. And then you, you stop the replication with antiretroviral therapy abruptly. The inflammation goes away over two to six weeks. And as that happens, the CD4 counts that were bound into the lymphoid tissue by uh, adhesion molecules, ICAM, VCAM, you can test for those if you want. You don't need to. But if you, if you actually did that, you see those go away. And as those adhesion molecules go away, the CD4 counts release back where you can see them in the circulation and you get this increase. So people, 90 plus percent get this, five to 10% don't. They're usually people who have much more advanced disease at diagnosis, much higher viral loads. You suppress the virus, but it just never happened. So biologically, there's really no difference. These folks might have a little bit higher mortality over time for reasons that aren't 100% clear, but they should respond very well to hep C therapy. So I would go back to your medical officer and director or whomever and just say, eh, I think it's okay. As long as his virus has been suppressed, he'll respond nicely. And I think there's something in the guidelines about that if you want to, like, oh, I was reading this. That would help, <laughs> yeah. 
So, uh, hey. Um, just a question. Um, you know, the first, within the first several patients that I had, um, it was always difficult to get the deliveries of the medications. Uh, and I started actually, I, and I still do it, uh, I tell them to lie to the people who are sending the drug and not start the drug for at least two weeks in case there's a delivery mess up. Um, but I was interested by your adherence uh, slide, the one with all those, the green and the yellow, um, I think it was yours, maybe it was. Um, is there data about people that have gaps in treatment? Um, and, you know, because uh, actually, it, happily, it was a mess up for the insurance uh, company each time. So I said, sorry, you got to start it over and pay for it. Uh, don't let this happen again. Um, but I, it, I yeah. didn't know what else to do. No, that's a great question. And I think that happened commonly. And I think people did things like what you did to even patients will do that kind of stockpile it and then start it. Um, so that study was one of the first ones where I saw, so I think in a lot of studies, if you missed more than five doses, they may have had you stop. The way I always dealt with it was I'd check a viral load, have people keep taking it. If they were negative, I'd just keep going. This study, they didn't do anything like that. And there, like I said, were a few people who missed seven days and they just had them keep going. They didn't, they just had them finish the pills, I should say. So they finished their whole course. Um, you know, which took seven days longer, presumably, because they hadn't taken those, and those people were cured. Now, I mean, it's a pretty small numbers, but I haven't seen any, like, large data set on that, but that to me was reassuring, because that's not necessarily what I would have done. <laughs> I always, um, but what I do, so just what I, you know, if I hear someone says, yes, I was incarcerated for a few days and didn't have my medication, I came out, I do tell them, you know, come in today, we'll check your viral load and keep taking it. But now, and then we'll see what it is, you know. But now I'm thinking I might just say keep taking it, I'm not sure. But if it's a longer interruption, like a couple weeks, you're probably like gonna have to start over. And you're gonna, that's a case, again, I would do, I'd consider doing a resistance test to see if you need to use Sofelvox now. Nobody's done that study. They did it for interferon and showed that you only need to take 80% of both pills 80% of the time. And that was enough for a cure. So for DAAs, nobody's turned around and done that study of what about patients who don't take their drugs. Maybe it's more, I mean, that study, your study that you showed suggests that it's more forgiving. Yeah, I saw someone else try to study it and they ended up not having. I mean, everybody was just cured, and then they didn't have <laughs> they didn't have so very many people in this, the less than ninety percent yeah. adherent group, so it was hard Hold to on. know much. Hold on. So just real quick. Yeah, I'm sorry. Just it's about this topic. That happens. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's right. Well, the studies show you can get 40 to 60% with six weeks. The problem was it's 40 to 60% instead of 98%. So they got lucky. Yep. If their fibrosis level is low. That's right. That's right. Please. Yeah, we're over-treating a lot of people. Yeah. But. So I Go ahead. 
Yeah, I have a question about these patients that um, they're not psoriatic, they're like they're um, stage three, about screening them for liver cancer mm. once they have an SVR, because there's some of these patients that, like, you know, it's like I see this guy looking at his ultrasound, looking at his labs, they're like perfect, and I don't want to stop screening him for liver cancer only because in the last, I would say, two years, I probably have about five or six patients that have liver cancer, and one of them is co-infected, and the, all the other ones are not co-infected, so I don't want to miss anybody, but my concern is, am I over-screening somebody that probably their liver you know, their fibrosis has improved so much that they don't need to be screened every six months because now I'm looking at his ultrasound like, really, should I, you know, I'm still seeing him every six months and it's like one of these things that, because he wasn't a cirrhotic, but he, he was more like a, you know, a, a stage three. So it's like, I feel like kind of so stuck. So the European guidelines say screen everyone stage three and four and the ASLD guidelines have finally caught up and they say the same. Um, remember, only 5 to 7% of people develop cancer per year, so you're over-screening over 90% over of your patients. But if you're the patient who develops cancer, you might be glad to be picked up early and be treatable. So it becomes even more of an issue post-SVR because the risk is probably down a third of that. So well, it's really a risk-benefit mm. discussion and only repeating a liver biopsy to see if you no longer have F3 or 4 would be a way around it. So let's dig a little deeper, and correct me if I could get the data wrong, but the reason you want to treat, find them early is that once a liver lesion gets above 3 centimeters, by Milan criteria, is that it? That they're no longer curable? Is no, it's one lesion greater than 5, 3 five. lesions large as 3. But the issue is the smaller the tumor, the better chance of resection, local regional therapy, liver transplant for cure. For cure. And if you compare Q6 with Q12, it's markedly better. Q12 picks them up, but they're rarely treatable. Double, doubling time somewhere around four months. So that's the reason it's a six-month recommendation. So I know it's unpleasant, and I know it's not a good answer, but it's all we have. I mean, the issue is when the patient comes in and they're like, I still have, you know, they're like, I still have to do this because, you know, they feel fine after getting on treatment for hep C, this chronic fatigue that they had that they didn't know, you know, was from the hep C, and it's at the point they're looking at me like, and I'm like, yeah, you have to come back. So, you know, it's just to feel good to be reassured. Yep. Yeah. We have time for some more, so let's go here and then there. Yeah. I, so I, I guess I have um, like a what would you treat my patient with? So, because I'm a little concerned for this gentleman. Um, he's HIV positive. We got his viral load under control. Um, he had terrible diabetes. We got his A1C down to like eight. We thought that he'd be good to start hepatitis C treatment. He's just slightly demented. Um, so I started him on Harvoni, checked the viral load at week three, because that's what we do at my clinic. Mm -hmm. So it... The, the log was appropriate for a decrease in viral load, so I gave him a second bottle. I checked his probably I checked his viral load again, I think, at week eight, and I had some concerns for adhering. So I called him back in and had him bring in all of his medication because um, I wanted to do a, a, like a, a bond bag review with him. And I found out that out of two 28-count bottles of Harvoni, 
he had taken maybe eight tablets mm-hmm. in the course of two months. Technically, he's a treatment failure. His viral load had been then increased by week eight, so he just stopped. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> my uh, infectious, infectious disease colleague, his HIV doctor, is trying to get his HIV back under control. We're trying to get his diabetes back under control. We're trying to hit that window to retreat him, but I'm terribly, terribly concerned that if I give him Vosevi and he does the same thing with the Harvoni, that there's nothing left for him. He's a compensated cirrhotic, and since I'm in Baltimore, I'm gonna say that he's genotype 1A, because mm-hmm. that's the majority. I don't, what would you do? So, he may have taken so little that he didn't get resistance. Actually, the one thing we know, the longer you're on treatment and it doesn't work, the more likely you are to have an NS5A resistance. And the other thing we know is once you stop treatment, the NS5A resistance usually hangs around. So you may want to check and see if he has NS5A resistance. And if he doesn't, come back in with another first-line treatment. I'm, I might do that with that case if you have... I mean, I think that would be a reasonable approach. If there was NS5A resistance, you need to give those heavy. Uh, so no NS5A resistance? Yeah. Do you think it's appropriate to retreat with one of the first line? I think so, because I think your theory is he didn't take enough to as, select And as long him. as there was no... Um, uh, intolerance, which might be a reason you just stop taking it, right? Yeah. Or not. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Yeah, I just have a general question in terms of acute uh, infection and when you decide to treat or wait for conversion. Great what your question. approaches are. Yeah. But that's your that's your expertise. Acute yeah. acute, acute HCV. Yeah. Yeah. So this is we. I had a discussion with someone. I think about this too at the break. I think it's a it's a little bit of a case by case scenario. Um, so, I think when you're seeing someone with acute Hep C, I'll generally try to get a sense of you know when they were infected if they have any sense. Um, usually, if they're going to spontaneously resolve, it'll be in within the first 12 weeks after diagnosis. Um, the people who tend to resolve are people who may be jaundiced, you know, tend to have the higher transaminase elevations. Um, but I think there's, you know, and, and before we had any data on treating acute hep C, I think we tended to wait that 12 weeks before treating. Now I think you could take a different approach. And um, one that I've seen is the European guidelines, uh, or the European uh, I think it was called the NEAT cohort. There was a cohort in Europe where they checked if the viral load hadn't dropped four weeks after diagnosis to, um, I can't remember the threshold, but I think it was two logs. It was substantially yes, by four weeks. If that hasn't happened, that person's not going to spontaneously resolve, and you should just go ahead and treat. So that's a way if you want to follow them a little bit and give them a chance to shorten that time you're following them. I think the... The concern about waiting three months is like, what's the patient situation? Are they someone who's going to come back and see you regularly? Or is this like your one chance to treat and they're going to be gone? I think you kind of have to consider that part of it as well. And and I think you definitely want to pair whatever you do with harm reduction. You don't want to, I mean, it wouldn't be right to just treat someone without figuring out how you can decrease their risk of reinfection. But but one of the reasons, it's a great question is that uh, when interferon was our best treatment, only treatment, um, the thought was treat the acute infection now because the response rates were much, much better 
with acute infection than waiting for it to really get established. I think with the DAAs, you're going to get cure either way. It's just a question of when. And so more, the most conservative view would be to say, wait six months and then see if it's still detectable. And if so, then you can treat. Um, because if they have a 15 to 20% chance of clearance, you don't have to go to the expense and time and effort of treating them. But you've, you've heard the counter argument. Did not want to wait, right? Yeah, well, that's part of the equation. So right? you might, you know, do the four week viral load, and if that's, yeah, yeah, and go. it was still positive. And, and so he probably wasn't going to be spontaneous. So sometimes, though, the viral load will go undetectable transiently and then come back, right, during acute infection. It's sort of ambivalent. It's ambivalent about. Oh yeah, it, the, it being negative at four weeks isn't for sure that they're going <laughs> to, it's not proof they've spontaneously resolved. It's just that you you have hope. <laughs> if, it's, <laughs> if it's the same, there's very little hope that they're going to spontaneously yep. resolve. I have a perfect um, follow-up to his question. Um, the, it's a case that I saw this week who um, had acute and symptomatic hepatitis C. Um, he said on November, uh, September 14th, he was admitted to a hospital in Queens with um, he was uh, diaphoretic and had malaise, and he was jaundice, and so he was diagnosed with acute hep C. So we know, um, you know, really we can time it very well. He um, he's also an active crystal meth user, and so he said everyone told him, "Look, it's because you use needles." And he said, "Look, I am so so cautious. I get my needles from a pharmacy. I've never shared with anyone." And I said, well, what else did you do while you were on the crystal meth? And he was like, oh, yeah, I could remember this day when I had sex with seven men when I was really high. And it was right before July 4th. So we know this, the whole timing. Um, but my question is, his, I got the first set of labs, and his um, hep C RNA is 1,000. His ALT is maybe 120. And his, um, he was, his Genvoya was held in the hospital. So the question is, um, the bilirubin is now 1.7. Can he resume ARVs? And because he had symptomatic acute hep C, is this someone you might wait with because his chances of clearance are probably a little bit higher? But then he's also a public health risk. So yeah. I think he's an interesting I think it's one. reasonable to wait on that. And I mean, I think now that he knows he has hep C, he may be more willing to take precautions, right? You know. So, um, so I would I agree. People who are jaundiced are the ones who are most likely to spontaneously resolve. So I'd give that a chance, and I would restart the genvoya. A few minutes, maybe one more. If anybody's Great got some. Great cases. Okay, yeah, you get the last uh, one. Yeah, as a as a person hoping to do Hep C, is there instances where insurance dictates what the regimen should be? Oh, they dictate all the time. All the time. That's, that's a hard question. Yes. <laughs> so what do you do if you do the best you can? There are, yes, thank you. That's actually a great question to end on. Um, you know, there, we just talked about these nuances of patient presentation and what does a patient want and what does a patient feel and all that. That's all important. And then you've got the other side of the equation, which is the administrative side. And if, if those of you who are, I will say, fortunate enough to live in New York and probably New Jersey and Pennsylvania, I heard, uh, a little bit more progressive states in terms of access to care issues, um, you can probably get through things pretty readily. Um, in other places, 
uh, uh, lower Alabama, um, it's more difficult. But the thing to do is first think about what, what you want to do, right? what's your primary goal of treatment, which, which regimen. And then sometimes there's alternatives that the insurance company may say, yep, we want you to use that one, and then you're okay. But a lot of times some, where you really get into trouble is, is or difficulty that the regimen you need to use is not approved, and they're trying to force you on a regimen that you know won't work because of guidelines. Then you've got to write the letters. I usually take a photocopy or a screenshot of the guidelines, send the reference, say this won't work. And I guess most of the time that's successful, but it's a pain. Yeah, we were it's talking about some of the union insurances are the ones that are the worst. They just yeah. won't bend. They're like, you can't, they'll, you know, let you use something that clearly isn't going to work. <laughs> so it has a whole new meaning to look for the union label. <laughs> but so. I think if you're starting out and you're in New York, um, it's pretty much Mavirat or Ecluza. Learn those two first. Those are usually what the insurance covers and um, go from there. Yeah, for HIV, Pennsylvania has a special benefits program, and they pretty much cover most HIV yeah. medicines. Yeah, I mean, it's what's happened, we alluded to this earlier, the last year or so, um, when uh, Meverett came out, as opposed to 90,000 AWP for sulfosphorylic uh, deficit, it was at 28,000. Now, reality was, through discounts, sorry, rebates, important difference, um, they were getting a, a probably a price to the insurance companies of around thirty to thirty-five thousand, maybe forty-five. So Maverick came in at a lower level, uh, and they maybe aren't heavily is uh, rebating as much or discounting. So I'm guessing what twenty thousand dollars a treatment course at the VA might be getting that now. But the point is, it's much less expensive, and they've ad adapted. But it really depends on who their deal is with. And that gets really into the weeds of pharmaceutical benefit managers, PBMs. Do we have any pharmacists here? Yes. So PBMs, you know about them. And they're, I think they're the incarnation of evil in their own way. And they're, 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 they, on, on, in purpose, they have great, you know, great mission. But in reality, they're kind of, um, my, my opinion, kind of thieves in the night. And you, you can't, you, don't, you never know. It's against the law for them to publish or release what an individual insurance company's deal is. We gotta move that, gotta get rid of that. Um, okay, so we're at the hour. Um, so we're going to a new website, but the, the uh, URL will be the same. So you go to www.iasusa.org and you should have your own account at this point. If you don't, talk to one of the folks before you leave, they can help you. And this is where you're gonna have uh, your ability to do the uh, post-course um, feedback, really, really important. I mean, I, I think what we're looking for is not only commentary on what we presented and how we did it, but I'd especially like comments on this last section because this was a bit of an experiment of what do I do with my patient with. Um, we've not done that before, but give us some feedback on that. Um, and then you get your uh, CME this way. So um, you find your name. Click your activities, um, and the look, click on the gray sunburst icon in the far right column. Do we have this printed out for folks? You, you have it? Okay. You should be getting an email with these instructions, so I think we can kind of follow this. Complete the evaluation. You get to it. You say submit. Take the CME post-test. Now, again, the questions I think we've addressed, hopefully. 
Uh, so usually there's improvement. Um, uh, after completing it, you'll be directed to claim your uh, stuff. And then the final step, ans answer yes to the question, are you a licensed physician or for the MOC for BIM or for uh, their specialties. And then you finish with the green, green sunburst icon to print your certificates. You don't have to wait for anybody to mail it to you. You'll have it. And that will be the end of that. For pharmacy and nursing credits, it's kind of the same thing. And there's, yeah. All right. So your point, yeah, thanks. Great job. Good participation.